this episode of 9-2-Y Talks, award-winning TV journalist Jeff Greenfield sits down with NBC's Katie Turr, author of Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, for a discussion on the current political climate, the president, and the future of the press. The conversation was recorded on March 18, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, if I were pitching a romantic comedy to a Hollywood producer, it would go something like this. A young network correspondent living in London is summoned back to the United States to cover a campaign, a presidential campaign. And she's told, don't worry, this is only going to last a couple of weeks. So she doesn't even clean out her refrigerator. She comes to New York, and she finds herself caught in a tornado. Not only does the campaign catch fire, but she, and not only does she find herself covering the most incredible unbelievable presidential campaign in history, she also finds herself the personal target of the candidate who calls her out and insults her and demeans her in front of thousands of frenzied supporters. And for a year and a half, she endures endless days and nights. She's uprooted from her life, her home, her boyfriend, but she perseveres and in the happy ending, she finds herself out of the campaign with a best-selling book, her own television show, and of course, a husband. <laughs> now, all of this is accurate, but it's not a romantic comedy, and the happy ending omits the part of what happens to the candidate himself. So it's part of a very serious, real story of a campaign and a president who has broken every rule, every standard, every norm, that we assumed were core elements in our political life. And now Katie Tour finds herself chronicling this new reality as host of a daily MSNBC show, and she finds herself facing the same questions that arose during the campaign, that arose for a lot of journalists. How do you cover a president who has declared the press an enemy? How do you deal with a president for whom reality is defined by what he declares to be true? How much did the way the press covered Donald Trump, how much did that help his campaign? And what does it mean to be objective or balanced in the way we've always understood those concepts? Or are they inoperative? Katie Turk comes to this work as the daughter of two pioneering Los Angeles journalists, a husband and wife team that more or less invented aerial journalism, including the LA car chases that are now part and parcel of life if you live out there. After going to UC Santa Barbara, she cut her teeth on a series of local stations in Los Angeles, Long Island, here, Channel 4. And her work has been defined, I think, by a quality of fierce determination that enabled her to survive the rigors of the campaign. And when I say rigors, there is a chapter in this book on Katie Turr trying to make a flight at LaGuardia in the middle of a traffic jam that will send chills down your spine. <laughs> she made it, uh, which is unsurprising. And indeed, she is now on the front line of an ongoing political melodrama uh, that has more twists than a pretzel factory and more turns than the Indy 500. So, in the words of Ed Koch, how is she doing? Let's find out. Please welcome Katie Turr. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> so since I started this as a romantic comedy, have you gotten a TV and movie deals yet? Um, so many have come and they're still flooding in and no, I'm kidding, I haven't gotten any. Not yet? Okay. No, there's, there, 
they're looking at something. I would, have, I, I would assume. Yeah, something more fun than a TV or movie deal. Ooh, okay. You'll see. All right. Hopefully. Action figure. Yes. Excellent. Good guess. Um. Bobblehead. <laughs> so let's start as we must with he who must not be ignored. Um, as you watch the president, how different or how similar is he to the person you covered for more than 500 days? He is exactly the same. There's nothing different about Donald Trump, the president of the United States, than Donald Trump, candidate for president of the United States. He's just as impetuous, he's just as angry, he's just as irreverent, and he's just as disrespectful of American institutions as he was when he started. By the way, um, that's an interesting, uh, one of the terms you used, angry. Um, so here's this guy, he's worth a lot of money, even if it may not be as much as he says. He's married to a beautiful woman, and he's president of the United States. What's he angry about? He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's had this chip on his shoulder since he was a kid. The, the kid who grew up in Queens who wanted to make it in Manhattan and came over to Manhattan, started building buildings, but wasn't accepted by the Manhattan elite. He's been warring against that. Um, his entire life. That's what he did in the tabloids here in New York City. He made buildings taller and he put his name bigger in order to try and gain the respect. And during the campaign, he was called a joke by pretty much everybody, especially uh, folks in the Republican Party, who thought he could not run on their ticket and that he was a carnival barker. So he was warring against this idea that he wasn't even being accepted by the, own, his, the elites in his own party while at the same time winning primaries. Same thing now while he is president of the United States. He's not being accepted by the press, the elites in the Republican Party, who are not in office right now at least, uh, the Democratic Party, the Hollywood's not accepting him, New York City doesn't accept him. Everybody that he's worked so hard to get approval from, to make them like him, are, are not liking him. And so he is angry about it. So what do you think would happen if the Congress passed a joint resolution declaring that Donald Trump is the handsomest, most brilliant, uh, most compassionate, most wise person in the North America? Do you think that would do it for him? No, no, I don't think so. And I think if he, if he really had a desire to get along and to um, make things better after the campaign or to, or to pass legislation that would be applauded by um, all sectors of this country, he could have done that. He could have started with an infrastructure bill. And that would have done a lot to ease what happened in the campaign. He would have found Democrats like Chuck Schumer to work with him on that. And it would have, it would have built a bridge after 2016. He did not start with infrastructure. He started by trying to tear down Obamacare, which was extremely divisive. Donald Trump wants to be liked but when he doesn't see that as an easy path, he will fight instead. I think he enjoys fighting more than he enjoys anything else. Speaking of Feeling which, victimized. Yeah, the, the, the now more or less universally described White House chaos, which is the theme of the week or whatever, um, the way that he, firing the Secretary of State with a tweet, watching the deputy director of the FBI get fired and sending a tweet that kind of jumps all over him. Is this also the Donald Trump you saw that for whom it's not enough to win, you have to in some Vanquish way... Vanquish and humiliate your enemies? Well put, yes. Yeah. 
Um, there's a moment in the campaign from uh, December 21st, uh, 2015. Sorry, I'm, I'm like Rain Man with the dates. Um, and he is uh, standing in, it's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, it's a rally that's right before Christmas, a few days before Christmas. And he said something that's stuck in my brain I haven't been able to shake. He said, everybody who goes against us, X, X, X. What does that mean? I've been trying to figure it out to this day. Who does he, who is he talking about, everybody that goes against us? What does he mean by XXX? Hmm. Is it Americans who don't agree with his policy? Is it the media who doesn't report more favorably towards him or doesn't shield his um, falsities? Is it other countries? Is it uh, terrorists? I don't know. Everybody that goes against us, XXX, that's the way he operates. It doesn't matter who it is, as if you are critical of him, American citizen, media, whatever, if you're critical of him, you are the enemy. I thought it was just that he was looking at a graphic of all the primary opponents that would, you know, but, but you have a, obviously have a different No, I don't and think more, it was. I think it was larger than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have to ask you, we're not going to spend this time flogging what is on cable news 22 hours a day. Thank God. No. But I do have to ask <laughs> I you. I do that every day. <laughs> I know. You only, do it, you only have to do it for an hour and then on other shows, but I get it. But uh, just today, we didn't, you know, we didn't have Sunday off. We never really do. Um, based on, your, on how you've seen Donald Trump behave and this need to vanquish whoever goes against us and what he was sending out today, are you or people you know pretty much convinced that sooner or later he's going to, he or he's going to try to get the Justice Department to fire the special counsel Mueller? He's already tried to do that. He tried to do it last year. He tried to tell um, Don McGahn to say that Robert Mueller should be fired. So he's already tried. Um, I don't think it is crazy to imagine him trying to do it again. Uh, he hadn't been tweeting about Robert Mueller directly. He, he had kept his mouth shut on that at the urging and advice of, of his lawyers. And today it was something new. Today he is he's actively and aggressively going after Mueller the way that he goes after everybody on Twitter that doesn't agree with him or is doing something he doesn't like. So why now? What is it that happened in the past few days that changed this? Well, number one, Mueller has subpoenaed documents from the Trump organization, and he had said in the past that anything going into his personal business or finance was a red line. We know he's extremely sensitive about that. We don't know why, because we haven't seen his tax returns. That's one of the reasons we, we don't know why. Um, and then uh, Maggie and I think Michael Schmidt are working on a story talking about Robert Mueller sending over questions to um, the president, uh, questions that he wants answered. So very clearly he is on edge and that's why he's lashing out about it. Um, I, I don't know if he's gonna end up firing him. I think it's hard to predict. I don't think it's crazy for him to do it. I also don't think it's crazy that he won't. <laughs> I think it just depends on how far it gets. The, the, the real question, more than does Donald Trump fire Robert Mueller, is what is, the Republican Party do uh, about it. Funny you say that, because that was my very next question. 
So Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham, said today that if Donald Trump fires Mueller, it will be the end of his presidency. Yeah. To which my response was the a... The beginning of the end, he said. Thank you. Who asked you? <laughs> Nobody likes... Never mind. But my point, my reaction to that was, what nonsense. We, you know, if there's one thing, and it's raised by your question, that we have seen is that there is so far nothing that Donald Trump will do that will engage the Republican Party, at least those who actually have any power, to push back on him. Now, if you're a lame duck like Senator Corker, uh, or if you're an outlier like Lindsey Graham, who, depending on what day of the week it is, is either Trump's enemy or his best friend. So the question you raise seems to me, that it seems to me you almost know the answer. That if he does fire Robert Mueller, Speaker Ryan will say it's troubling. Uh, Mitch McConnell will say nothing. You know, Speaker Ryan just came out with a statement on this. I can, ah. I can read it if, if you guys like. I noticed it in my phone right before I walked out. Um, Paul Ryan's spokeswoman, Ashley Strong, says, as the Speaker has always said, Mr. Mueller and his team should be able to do their job. Right. <laughs> Boy, you, you can't get much tougher than that, can you? Strong words. Yeah. Okay, so my, and I think we're going to circle back on this because it is, for what it's worth, it is my belief that, um, and it's why, the, it's why the, com the comparisons to Watergate are so idiotic, you know, the Congress was under democratic control then. They ran the investigations. They had the power. Half the Republicans in the Senate were moderates and liberals who didn't like Nixon, and there was no countermedia. Other than that, it's the same. Um, but okay, so... Uh, but, but it I, did take Republicans a little while, a, a good long time, before they decided to turn on Nixon. He won, he won re-election. It wasn't until there was a special election that Republicans lost, the Republicans started to turn on him. Now, uh, am no, I totally yeah. wrong? The, I'm mid, getting the, this ice You are. The, mid -term, the 74 midterms were after Nixon resigned. Special um, election. And there was no particular election thing that happened. It was, it, was the, it was John Sirica in 1973 putting a gun to the head of the Watergate burglars and making them turn. And it was the, it was the committee, the Irvin Committee, and John Dean's announcement that, that there was a cancer on the presidency and Alex Butterfield saying, oh, by the way, there are tapes. That all happened by the, spring, by the late spring of 73. But my point is the Republicans were, you know, were prepared to at least hold him accountable. They didn't vote against, they didn't vote for impeachment till later, till the tapes. My only point is a different country. Yeah. But I take your point that you have raised, seems to me the key question is, what will the Republicans do? I think that that's an unknown yeah. right now. Um, I, I think if you look at how things have gone, the goalposts keep getting moved for the Republican Party. Um, they keep saying, we will never let Donald Trump do this, and don't worry, he won't do that, and it's only a hypothetical, and then the, the goalposts move, 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 because he starts doing the things that he they said that he would never do. Um, I think it's a stretch to believe that, that the suddenly Republican leadership, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, will have a, a strong backbone if Donald Trump decides to fire Robert Mueller suddenly now and say, this is too far, we're not going to let this happen, because everybody right now cares more about their own political future than they do about anything else, their own reelection, And they're terrified at the moment 
at this particular moment of Donald Trump's voters. Because if Donald Trump's voters uh, turn against the Republican Party, what happens to their job? Which is why mid the midterms are going to be so interesting. If the Democrats win in a landslide, and if Democrats are able to take over Republican-leaning districts or deep red districts, or if the Senate flips to Democratic control, which is more difficult than the House, then where do Republicans stand? Will their allegiance still lie with Donald Trump? I don't think it's a stretch for anyone to think that these Republicans don't like him. I don't think they do. They're just afraid of his voters and they're afraid of his wrath. Right. So if they lose that, if Donald Trump doesn't have the hold over the voters that he has at the moment, then he's not gonna have the same hold over the Republican Party. And that is why looking at what happened in Pennsylvania in a district that won't be there in November any longer, is so interesting looking at how Rick Saccone lost in a deeply red district, a district that Donald Trump won by 20 points. Connor Lamb won it. And that has got to send some, some shock waves throughout the Republican Party, rattle things around a little bit. And if there, if there is a, a wall, that might be the first crack. No, I think that's, and what the, the, the specter you raise is absolutely fascinating, which is that if they were to get clobbered and lose the House, which is, which is a distinct possibility, the Senate's trickier. The Senate's much then trickier. The, then the Republicans find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place, yeah. because Trump is, it is now Trump's party. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 90% of the Republicans think he's, he's fine. Yeah. I think that's the number. So that's it. That's kind of interesting. By the way, I I want to move this question to the front. Um, so he's been president for 14 months, 13 and a half months, whatever. What's the best thing he's done? That's a good question. Um, I think. Oh gosh, the bad. It's not really my my. I don't really judge in terms of the best thing he's done or the best thing he hasn't done. It depends on who you're talking to. If you are a um, deeply conservative person who cares very strongly about the courts, you will look at what Donald Trump has, who he has appointed. You will look at Neil Gorsuch and you'll say, he's done exactly what I want him to do. He's appointing conservative judges. He's aligning himself with the Federalist Society. And that is what, why I voted for him, sure. the number one reason why I voted for him. If you're an American businessman, you hate regulations, you'd say Donald Trump has rolled back a number of regulations that it's going to enable me to work more freely. I'm not gonna be hampered any longer. Um, if you were, searching for a tax cut for the wealthy, you would say, hey, that tax cut's really wonderful. It just depends on who you are and how you're looking yeah. at so it. So let me rephrase it, because that was, that was, you're quite right, but it doesn't get at the heart of what I'm trying to get at. So even people who didn't like George W. Bush pointed to his AIDS initiative in Africa and said, you know, that was, that was great, saved millions of lives. And at least for a while, there were conservatives who thought that Obama's education policies under Arne Duncan were actually good because they were innovative. They weren't just following the United Federation of Teachers. So from the point of view of a neutral or a skeptic of Trump, I'm not asking you personally, because you are after all an objective journalist, but <laughs> what would someone who was not on board with Trump think, okay, that one, that one, I'll give him that. It's hard to point out. Any one thing. I mean, that's just the honest truth. Okay. Um, I, I think that tariffs are something that, that may be up in the air. Yeah. Um, it's hard. What he does with opioids, how does he address that crisis? But everything he does 
the good that um, the other side might see in it gets gets tainted by something else he says. I mean, you look at the the opioid um, addiction crisis and and what Donald Trump wants to do to combat it. He's going to come out with his plan on Monday. We'll see more of it. But he's already talking about, you know, giving the death penalty to to drug dealers, and that you know makes it people deeply uncomfortable. And then if you're looking at um, tariffs, he's mocking Justin Trudeau, the, the Prime Minister of Canada, and, and okay, well that's uncomfortable, I don't, I don't really okay. know about that. Or, or guns, way, he initially was very open and sympathetic to those family members and the teachers, and then a day later he has a, a good parentheses, great meeting with the NRA, and it just seems like there's nothing that's just a clean thing with Donald Trump. By the way, my son Dave suggested, wondered if Trump was for the death penalty for the opioid pharmaceutical executives who peddled all this that's stuff. A, but that is a good question, because when you look He's at the, the opioid crisis, it's, it's funny, you know, in some ways, but at the same time, it's a deeply legitimate question. If you look at the opioid crisis, who is doing more to perpetuate it? Drug dealers on the street? No, it is the executives. Of the of these companies that are that are pouring so many of these pills into our into our system, and the doctors who are prescribing them without any checks and balances. Well, let's see if he comes out for the death penalty for corporate executives. I'm, I'm, I, I grant you that with him, it's it's not out of the question because nothing's really out of the question. So let me let me ask let me turn to our business. Um, I'm sure you know that there are many people, um, that's, that's what Trump says, many people think, right? Many, but in this many. case, it's true. There are a lot of people who think that the coverage given to Trump in, in the first months of the campaign, covering his rallies, you know, gavel to gavel without, without critical focus, putting him on interviews whenever he wanted, even letting him call in by phone, which nobody else got. By one estimate, he got a billion and change in free media. Looking back on it, and it may be hard because you were in the maelstrom, do you think that the way Trump was covered, particularly by the 24-hour news networks, was in fact a huge boon to his campaign? I think that we have to uh, do some real soul searching on that and, and figure out if that contributed to a, an imbalance, a real imbalance in, um, in, in the campaign. Um, the thing about his coverage was the more that we were critical of him, and we were extremely critical of his candidacy and the things that he said. Yes, we aired those those rallies in full, and again, this is not my decision, so I can't tell you the, the, the thinking behind it up top, but yes, we aired them, but coming out of them and leading up to them, the coverage was very, very critical, and there were fact checks, and there was, um, context given and a lot of time given to how out of the box and outrageous some of the statements were and how deeply personal um, and inappropriate some of the things he said were. Um, but the more we did that, the more critical we were of him, the, the more his supporters liked him. Yeah. And the, the, and the deeper they dug in, um, there came a point where there was truly nothing that anyone could say about Donald Trump that would convince his voters not to vote for him. Nothing. And I, I, and I use an example, Ashley Parker of the Washington Post was working at the New York Times at this time. She interviewed a, a lady, and this is the best example, 
interviewed a lady in New Orleans um, and asked her what it would take, because this would be a question we'd ask a lot of Trump supporters, what would it take for you not to vote for him? And she said, he could shoot my dog and I would still vote for him. Maybe if he shot my daughter, I wouldn't vote for him. I mean, but that, it's, it's shocking, but that wasn't, it wasn't, um, that wasn't an extreme example. I mean, it was certainly the, the most... Um, but it's what he said. Blatant example, but it's what he said. When he said, I could shoot somebody in Fifth he Avenue. Did, and, 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 and they did, and they were, they were there. So our coverage, um, what, I wonder if our coverage ultimately mattered at all. I think because they were, they were going to vote no matter what. Yeah. The, the going forward is if there are 16 Democrats in the race or 16 other Republicans in the 2020 race, are we now going to be airing everybody's rally in full? Because that's, I mean, that's where yeah. you have to look but at But the answer, you know the answer, and it's not a mystery why this stuff was done. It's because, the, because it got eyeballs. I mean, I think this all goes back to the first debate which now seems about eight years ago, the first Republican debate got numbers more like a general election debate. Yeah. And the next thing that happened was CNN increased the price of its ads for the next debate tenfold. And what I think your boss and Jeff Zucker and then Roger Ailes, what everybody realized was this guy drives the numbers. And, you know, next to your own best-selling book, one of the great beneficiaries of Trump has been the news business. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, they put, they put the uh, rally of Trump for uh, Saccone on that Saturday night, right? All three cable news networks, I think, unmediated. I mean, yes, mediated before and after. And my view, I mean, I think you hit it exactly right, that, that everything that a lot of us thought was a bug with Trump was a feature. Yeah. The vulgarity, that just shows that he's talking like I talk. The flaunting of the wealth, that's how I'd live if I was a billionaire. The breaking of norms, well, these big shot establishment people, in fact, you have summarized in your book um, the Trump appeal. I want to read it because I think sure. it, is, it, it is succinct and quite right. Um, you write, they've decided, the Trump, that this menacing, indecent, post-truth landscape is where they want to live for the next four years. Look, I get it. You can't tell a joke without worrying you lose your job. Your 20-something can't find work. Your town is boarded up. Patriotism is called racism. Your food is full of chemicals. Your body's full of pills. You call tech support and reach someone in India. Bills are spiking, but your paycheck is not, and you can't send your kid to school with peanut butter, and on top of it, nobody seems to care. I think that's, you know, but then in the next paragraph, you make this other point, that as you go to these rallies, you see things that literally shock you. You see people walking around with their families wearing obscene T-shirts about Hillary Clinton. And you hear chants, not just lock her up, but assassinate the bitch. And so in your, you got what's as close. More, what's more horrible about that is not the assassinate the bitch, but that nobody admonished that man. The whole crowd looked at him and then just went on as if it was totally fine to say that. It wasn't those you know, one or two people who wore those obscene shirts or said those obscene things. It was that everybody else embraced them. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but at the same Sorry. time, you're recognizing what drives the, the, the frustration and then you watch how it, how it manifests itself and it's, you know, it's pretty grim. 
You also in the book, uh, and this, this really struck a note with me, you have very tough things to say about access journalism. Uh, Maggie Haberman was here a couple of weeks ago, and she's been confronted, I think unfairly, with the notion that you're so close to Donald Trump, you're, you know, you're, you're not able to criticize him. But this is what you write it more generally. You, you write, access means good nuggets from a campaign, access means your calls get answered, access is safe and secure, and somewhere along the way, wherever it is I am right now, I decided access journalism isn't worth it. So how does that play out in, in your work today? Um, I, let me just first defend Maggie because she's yeah. an incredible journalist and I don't think, I think anyone who calls Maggie Haberman an access journalist is, doesn't an understand idiot. what access journalism is and right. also doesn't look at the totality of her reporting, which is not nice um, and extremely critical. She's got an insight into the president unlike anybody else. And uh, it's surprising because she is not nice to him. So she's not an access journalist and that is not who I was thinking of when I wrote no, that. I know, and, and I, know I just wanted to be clear um, and, and defend somebody who I respect greatly. Um, how does that factor into my daily life now? Well, I mean, it's the same thing. I, I don't think that, um, while I would love Donald Trump to pick up the phone and call me and give me an insight into his, into his thinking, I also don't think you need it to cover him. I don't think that me going on air and saying nice things and you know hoping the president's watching and maybe we'll tweet something about a segment like Fox and Friends does in the morning, what does that get you? That doesn't get you anything. You're not covering the president. You're not reporting on him. You don't need access for journalism. But do you have sources inside the Dwight House? I do. And you? Sometimes they answer the call, my calls and sometimes they don't. It just depends on the day. It, listen, it, it, it it's more about respecting your ability to be fair and your ability um, to paint things in an accurate light. Uh, I think people in the White House right now are, are very clear-eyed, some of them at least, are very clear-eyed behind the scenes about what is going on. So there's no, I don't think you were fair on television and so I'm not gonna talk to you. Sometimes there's that, but it's not, I, I, don't, I don't think these journalists are telling the truth. If they didn't think we were telling the truth, didn't think we were doing a good job, they wouldn't be answering our calls. Um, unless they just wanted attention and there's probably a few of those. But having those sources does not mean that you cannot be critical of the job that they are doing. There is a difference. And in fact, that this is like getting an alley-oop pass from you know, Michael Jordan. This is exactly where I wanted to go. Because it's the, it's, it, the question I'm, I'm wrestling with and that you must wrestle with on a regular basis is where does objectivity play if you come to the conclusion that the president is behaving in ways that are dangerous or whatever. I mean, you, you um, just a couple of days ago, you were, you were talking about Trump shredding the, I think the phrase you used, well, not possible, something like either shredding the Constitution or threatening our basic process. You were very tough on the evangelicals who still support Trump when you said, um, let me get, you said something like, so you're not gonna vote for Hillary Clinton because of abortion, but you can vote for Donald Trump who's had three divorces, who sells vulgar, vulgar things, and who has bragged about grabbing women by the genitals. So how do you, it's not just you obviously, a guy like Jake Tapper, you know, who constantly calls Trump out, but on the other hand, also called Obama out when he thought Obama was, was behaving badly. So do you see yourself as somebody who, 
who reaches the conclusions as a reporter and then feels free to say, okay, here's what I think is going on and here's how I measure the president? I think that, yes, and I think, it's, listen, it's a struggle because um, we've never been in a position like this before. Um, we've never had a, a, a president like Donald Trump before who has so willfully and, and blatantly uh, threatened American institutions. I think that saying that he willfully and blatantly threatens American institutions is not my opinion. That is a fact. Um, he does. He does so on Twitter. He does so in interviews. He says it in speeches. He does these things. And the difficult thing is, is reporting on somebody who does so many negative things and reporting that they are all negative things. And then you think, oh my gosh, am I putting my opinion on this because it's negative? No. The reality is Donald Trump doesn't tell the truth. Oh. The reality is Donald Trump has no respect for the way this country runs, has no respect for separation of powers, uh, doesn't respect the FBI because the FBI is investigating him, doesn't respect his attorney general because his attorney general, in his own words, is not protecting him as he thinks an attorney general should do. He does not respect the free press very clearly. I don't need to list examples on that. He doesn't ex respect our, our voting, our elections. He doesn't respect them. Before, the, in the run-up to the campaign, he was, he was sowing, the, in the run-up to the election, he was sowing the seeds of, um, of, of everything being um, a fraud. If I don't lose, it's rigged by definition. It's rigged. Yeah. Everything is rigged, Donald Trump would say over and over again. He doesn't trust democracy. He undercuts democracy. He doubts the, the very fundamentals so, of democracy. And at that point, if there are any Trump supporters in this hall, they would say, well, I, you know, you've just disqualified yourself from covering them. You've reached the conclusion that he is, in effect, a, a menace to our system. And how can, I mean, this is the devil's advocate questions. How can you cover him every day when you've reached that conclusion that he does all these things? I, I, I would say I, I'm, I'm reporting facts every single day, and that's my job. My job is not to be nice to somebody because you think I should be nice to them or you like them, and so I should give more favorable coverage to them. My job is to say, you like what he's doing, and you think this is a good idea, and Donald Trump is doing it anyways, and he's getting votes, but at the same time, this is not the way this country has been run. Laying out the facts as they stand is not taking a side. And to circle back to what you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the traditional notion of how all this works, a couple of political scientists describe it as rise, scrutiny, decline. That is, someone enters the public arena and becomes very visible. And the press and the other institutions, political institutions, cast a, a spotlight on this person. And should this person be found wanting, that person declines. And what does seem to me that happened in 2016, there was rise and eventually scrutiny, and, it wasn't, and, there, and there was no decline, at least not enough, to cost him the presidency. Now, you can argue this was like a perfect storm, you know, 50,000 votes in three states, James Comey's whatever. But what does, it, what does it tell us that the kind of reporting that brought down a Joe McCarthy, that ultimately... Excellent brought down Nixon, along with the political, pro well, they also had the political process working. 
um, that ultimately got Americans to doubt the Vietnam War and even ultimately the Iraq War. When it came to Trump. I think it says a lot about the trust that exists um, in the media. Uh, I think it says a lot about our ability to interact with people who don't share our opinions. I think it says a lot about how this country has divided itself. I think it says a lot about the ways in which we um, inform ourselves. I mean, there's a, there's a number of things that go into it, and, and the rise of social media can't be discounted. The rise of being able to decide where you want to get your news. I like this opinion, so I'm going to go to this site. I want to hear these voices, so I've only followed these people on Twitter, or this is what my Facebook feed tells me. And then not looking at those things with a critical eye. I'm sure um, we're all guilty of that to a degree on both sides. You probably tailor your social feeds or, or your outlets to, to places that you, that you agree with. But here's the thing about, about journalism. It should make you uncomfortable. I shouldn't be comforting you every day. I should be making you uncomfortable every day. Journalism is not, is not a, you know, a warm blanket. We are, we are shining a spotlight. Yeah. We are telling the truth, and the truth can be ugly. Most times the truth is ugly. But see, the, the reason that I lit up when you talked about the warm blanket is I've told this story here before. Um, I was at a uh, gathering with, I, now she's retired, I can tell you, it was with Barbara Boxer. And she was talking about how much she liked Keith Olbermann then on MSNBC. And I said to her, why after 12 hours in the Senate would you go home and turn on anything except the Roman, you know, a musical comedy or you know, a ball game? What, what, you, what is it? And she said, it's like sinking into a nice warm bath. In other words, she was coming home and getting a reaffirmation that everything she thought was true. And you know that Ted Cruz was going home and watching Sean Hannity. And so the idea of, you know, the, the old cliche journalism should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, what I think you're describing is that uh, on the news networks, you know, it's basically, you know, what, what medication are you, would you like? Yeah. Do you want a downer? Or an yeah, yeah. Well, would, would you like that Trump is the greatest president and don't believe anything he says, or would you like that Trump is a minute away from being impeached? It's Alice in Wonderland. You know, choose your pill. Um, yeah, and, and that's part of the problem. And it starts with, the root of it is education. I mean, more than anything else. It's, you need to, people need to learn how to be critical of the content they read. And it's only gonna get more difficult to do so because actual fake news is going to become more prevalent. Sites that look just like the New York Times or look just like NBC News will be able to more easily trick people into thinking that it's a legitimate news source. And so if we don't start with a basic set of facts, if we don't have a president uniting the country under a basic set of facts, then we're gonna have a very difficult time moving forward because it is only getting worse. I talk about this in the book briefly, but journalism needs to be taught in elementary schools. Journalism needs to be a consistent course throughout your education so you are able to go and parse information. You need that. If we can't parse information, if we can't find the truth, then we can't have a conversation. CNN is a great ad. I know I don't work for them, but they've got a great ad. 
um, this is an apple. Yeah. It is not a banana. That, that is where we're at right now. People telling you that this apple is a banana. That's not far-fetched, that's what's happening. And if we can't all decide this is an apple, we're, we're going down a bad, bad road that's not gonna lead anywhere nice. I'm just picturing um, a state board of education knowing the political fights that have happened over all kinds of issues, say in, let me just, Texas. What kind, and I'm picking that deliberately, not it's not an insult to Texas, I mean that they've had a whole series of fights about what to teach. So in Texas, what, what kind of journalism do you think the first graders would be taught in a place like Texas? Do you think they would be taught the values you just enunciated? I would hope so. Yeah, well, as Bacon said, hope makes a good breakfast but a lean yeah, but, supper. But it's not the problem, It's true though. about Bacon, too, by the way. But isn't that the problem, though, is that we, we, live, in, we live in an era and, and in a place where it, it all depends on, on where you are, where you grew up, where you're living, and who's, who's teaching you. They're, they're just, we don't have any shared experiences any longer. You know, we don't, very few of us gather around to watch one event on television. Super Bowl ratings are down. There's not, there's not like a shared, there's nothing, there's no shared experiences. Very few shared experiences. Right, although I have to say that um, the experience of, of three networks dominating news coverage is a bit of an anomaly. I mean, in New York, uh, well, long ago from your perspective, not that long ago from mine, you know, we had seven newspapers. And the New York Post, believe it or not, was an ardently liberal newspaper. And the Daily News was a, was a um, very conservative newspaper, as was the Journal American. And the Times and Herald Tribune were. And so the newsboys, which they were then, would yell, what do you read? Meaning, where do you want to get your opinions from? Yeah. Um, whether we get back, I mean, you know, I think the idea that we're going to ever get a place of shared information on a, on a wide basis just not, that's just not where we are. But I wanted, since we're on journalism, one of the, one of the neat things about your book, uh, if anybody is in this audience or has a child or grandchild or whatever who is interested in journalism, one of the neat things about this book is it is a wonderful um, account of just what it is like to be in this situation. I mean, uh, you know, as a, as a, a a person afflicted with obsessive compulsive disorder, the chapter on you trying to make that airplane at LaGuardia, <laughs> I, I had to lie down and take a nap you after You neglected it. to mention that it was right after a massive snowstorm. Yeah, too. I did, because I'm a bad journalist. Um, <laughs> but there's this one incident in the book where, and it, we have to remember that, you know, because you're on a cable network, you're kind of in demand every minute, right? So you, th this, Word gets out that Trump is going to announce a ban on all Muslims entering the country. And I think it's maybe a minute later or whatever that you're called that you have to get on the air. And you say to them, look, I, you know, I, I, I just saw this. I don't know the context. And from the other end, the person says to you, don't worry, Katie, just talk. And I thought that was like emblematic of what's happening in so much journalism. They did not care that you did not know anything because you couldn't possibly have known anything. Just talk, we gotta fill time. Yeah. Now, um, what, what, if anything, can be done about this kind of impulse? I saw it at CNN for years. I saw it even at ABC when the satellites came in. I mean, how, you know. I, I don't know, because it's only getting worse with social media, because you get everything in the moment, in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. I mean, you can, 
Donald Trump announces a Muslim ban. This was in a news release that we all got in our emails. And then suddenly everyone knows about it within, everyone across the country, around the world can know about it within five, 10 minutes just by looking at their phones and seeing people tweet. There's very little time to digest. Um, and it's, it's acute, especially with Donald Trump, because he buries one controversy with another controversy. So you're constantly playing catch up and no, now this is new news. This thing that happened at 9 a.m. is gonna be old by 2 p.m. I mean, we have this debate every day. Um, in that specific instance, and what you have to hope for are journalists who, even though they don't know about the specific thing, can give you the context for why they why Donald Trump might be doing it or why whoever they're covering might be doing it. And that's what I was able to give in that moment, even though I had to you know, quickly figure out if anybody had ever tried to ban an entire religion in this country before. Um, Chinese Exclusion Act was the, the closest I could, I could come to. Um, but I was, since I had followed him every day at that point for six months, able to tell you why he might be announcing at that at that particular time. I could tell you that Donald Trump has been flirting with this idea of being the hardest person, the toughest person on terrorism, that President Obama a day before had given a terror speech and the headlines were all focusing on President Obama and Donald Trump has this, um, this Pavlov's dog, this like knee-jerk need to be in the headlines and the center of attention at all times, so this would be his way of grabbing all of those uh, uh, headlines back. I could tell you at the time, because we had just done a poll, that the majority of Republican voters, their biggest concern was being the victim of terrorism. Their biggest concern, not the economy, not education, not the environment, being a victim of terrorism. So Donald Trump is playing on all of these things and using them to his advantage. President Obama wants to be nuanced on terrorism and what are we gonna do about San Bernardino because that had just happened. Donald Trump doesn't want any nuance. It's all black and white, we're gonna shut our doors. So what you're, I think what you're telling us is that perhaps the most critical need for a journalist who finds herself in a position that you found yourself in is you better have done your homework. Do your homework, have somebody with the experience, but also somebody who's willing to say, honestly, on the air, we are just learning about this and we are still trying to figure it out. We don't know. I don't know is one of the most important phrases, I think, in journalism. And I think that reporters need to be, need to have the confidence to say it when it is true. Sometimes I'm, we don't know. I made a career out of that. I knew so. <laughs> until I finally realized, yeah, you don't know anything, do you? <laughs> But reporters, um, we don't know anything. I mean, that's why we're reporters oh, I, I, because we're trying to get information from from experts and people. I mean, we are we are we are giant sponges soaking up the information around us. But what this also raises um, is what's not being covered. I mean, I you know I have just about given up watching CNN where I worked for a, quite a number of years. Because every time I turn around, there are these panels. They, get, they grow. It begins to look like the appetizing counter at Zabar's on a Saturday morning. <laughs> uh, and it's Russia, 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 yeah. Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. Now, meanwhile, a couple of weeks ago, the president decided that he was not going to back the construction of a new rail tunnel between New York and New Jersey. Possibly because no he... Coverage. But my point is that story, the potential consequences of that story, are 
the collapse of a significant portion of the Northeast economy. We're talking about millions of people unable to get to work and the inability to deliver goods from New York out. But that's not a sexy story. And I'm sure you can give me many more examples of the kind of changes in regulations respecting the environment, banks, uh, consumer protection, uh, civil liberties and civil rights that get, uh, you know, you can find them in the New York Times and the Washington Post. I would argue, and maybe you can, maybe you can disabuse me of this, I'm not sure that we've seen a lot of that coverage on uh, on You don't TV. see a lot of it on cable. You're, you just don't because everything is, is highly focused on whatever Donald Trump has said in the, in the last five minutes. Right, so let me answer something. Suppose you as the anchor of your show say to your executive producer, look, we gotta take a breath. All right, this is, uh, you know, it's my face up there, it's my... So how about we take 20 minutes of the show and talk about this issue or that issue? What would happen? Or have you done it? Listen, I, I, I've, I have wars um, on a daily basis. Uh, there are powers above each of the individual anchors that dictate more than we would like. Um, and not saying corporate entities, I'm saying just our editorial bosses. Um, in the newsroom. That being said, it depends on uh, the hour and the personality, and there is room to get other news in. We have a segment on my 2 p.m. show called While You Weren't Looking, which highlights those very things. Looks at regulations, or looks at the environment, or looks at something that might, we might not be paying attention to, an abortion vote, or um, uh, what's happening with cabinet members, and the patterns that, of their spending. We, we have that segment that enables us okay. to take a step back and to do it. I, it's an important segment that we try to protect. The problem that we have, for me specifically, in the 2 p.m. hour, is that everything seems to happen in the 2 p.m. hour. Um, there's always breaking news, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders has her briefing often in the 2 p.m. hour, so it will run over some of my best laid plans. I agree with you, though. I think that more of that stuff needs to be covered every day. You're not going to find an argument with me on that. I think we are missing the forest for the trees a lot of the time because we are too focused on Donald Trump, much in the same way we were too focused on him during the campaign and not talking to people enough. Um, Part of it, and a lot of it, is just viewers. I think Syria is a, is a massive story. It's a huge crisis in Syria. There's bombings, there's, it's humani there's humanitarian um, uh, horrors. But are you turning on the television and watching the crisis in Syria? I mean, are you, are you watching that? Honestly. Well, see, I have to say... But that is the problem, and, and it's, it's a chicken and an egg, and as much as I want to devote an entire hour to what's happening in Syria, I remember I was a foreign correspondent, so I have, a, I have a real soft spot for that sort of news. If we suddenly, if we do that, and nobody watches, right. then we run into a serious problem. We are not the BBC. You are not publicly funding us by uh, paying a TV license every day. The way that we make money, the way that we are able to do our news gathering, not just for this cable network, but for the entire company, which involves NBC broadcast side, the Today Show, Nightly News, all of the digital content that we have, including our website, where a number of stories um, that don't make air are, are put to, um, the, the Snapchat show we have, all of it is funded 
by people watching. And if you're not watching, then we cannot do that. And it's, it's got to come from more than just us deciding yeah. what to cover because it has to come from people wanting to see more of a variety of news. But I have to say, to its credit, CBS News, on its 22-minute newscast, has, has kept the focus on Syria. And, and you know, that's, that's a, an even more pressured thing. One of the things that I was never happy with about where I worked or any others, you have 24 hours of, allegedly, of time for news. And you would think that in, you know. Last question before we turn to the very props to you folks. These are good questions. Um, I mentioned your book was, was a great in, uh, kind of window into the world. And one of the things I kind of liked about the book was you make no secret of the fact that, okay, you were thrown on the Trump campaign when the assumption was this was like a joke. Now the campaign begins to get visibility and you get visibility. And all of a sudden, many of your NBC colleagues are sniffing around and you are very clear in the book about, uh, you know what, I don't really like it when all of a sudden I find myself you know, eased out of the coverage or, <laughs> or denig denigrated. I mean, but, but I think what I like about the book is that is a part and parcel of the business that, that, you know, as you get visibility in the story you get, it's called in the trade big footing. Yeah. Right? Where the big shot suddenly says, well, I think I'll take this story. Mentioning no names, Andrea Mitchell. Um, <laughs> If no, anyone's you, you big love her. You, and you say, I know, you, you, you. you say, you say wonderful things about her. But I, I mean, is, but but how did you? How did you? Just very briefly. The Muslim ban day was a good example of that. Andrea totally bigfooted me that day, and I understand why she would. I mean, she has been our chief international affairs correspondent forever. If anybody can talk about what this will mean globally, and 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 the precedent that it's breaking, it's Andrea Mitchell, of course. My argument that day was, well, you need the context of what people think about it on the ground here, and if you don't have that piece, you're missing it, and that's why you need me. Um, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump was a, a, was a very much a joke in the early stages of the campaign. Nobody wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I just got assigned it because I happened to be in town that day, and I wasn't a political journalist. They weren't going to waste one of their political reporters with covering Donald Trump, and, and seriously, and... It ended up being very beneficial because if you would just put a one of the political journalists on it who have all the baggage of Washington, the baggage of how things are supposed to happen, I don't think you would have gotten as insightful coverage. You needed somebody coming from the outside to cover an outsider. Um, but as time went on, that became a more difficult argument to make on its own. I couldn't just say, well, I've been here since the beginning and I'm an outsider, blah, blah, blah. I had to be the one breaking the most news. I had to be the one with the best sources. And this is where you have to balance the access and the sourcing. And I had to be the one who, who knew the campaign better than anybody else did. So it became you know, a fight for survival more than anything else. But you want that in your, in your journalism. You want that in your newsrooms because that pushes you to do the very best job you can do. I am, I am 10 times a better journalist because of Hallie Jackson and Casey Hunt and Andrea Mitchell and Kristen Welker and Peter Alexander chasing after the Trump campaign and chasing after my story. It forced me to grow and be a better journalist. Yeah, I understand. I hated that. I mean, you want to... <laughs> 
you want to throw a sharp <laughs> elbow every once in a while behind you, but, but that's, that's normal. Okay, so here are some questions. <laughs> um, why won't journalists call Trump a liar and his statements lies instead of all the silly enthusiasms, euphemisms, like he he's loose relationship with the truth? Now, let me just say, the New York Times, during the campaign, in a headline... Called him a liar. Called him a liar. Yep. I've called him a liar. I did a, min a minute ago, I think, on stage. Um, he is a liar. Here's He's a liar. I mean, yeah. I say it in my book, and I thought, yeah. I thought of all the things that NBC might not like in the book. I thought they would not be happy with me calling Donald Trump a liar, and, and they didn't say a word about it. Yeah, see, I'm not sure that's right. I think he may... Go ahead. There's a distinction to be made. I don't think we can always call him... And not everything is a lie, and not everything... He's... I do think he's a liar. I'm sorry. Hey, no. Um, it doesn't offend me. I mean, it's okay. You go right ahead. But I don't think he's always lying. I think some have to be termed as falsities. I think some are... Sh I know you're scoffing. Shading the truth, etc. Because you, have, you get into a, uh, an issue with intent. And we are really prickly about that in journalism because we want to be as precise as possible. And if you can't prove that his intent was to mislead, then it's hard to say that it is a lie. There now, though, is, there are some very clear moments where it, he is intending to mislead, and it's uh -huh. hard to argue otherwise. Other moments are more difficult. But with everything we've seen of Donald Trump, I think it's clear that he lies okay. a lot. The only, my only pushback is, and I think it's much worse, by the way, is I think anything he says he believes. I think he thinks that thousands of Muslims cheered the fall of the towers. I think he thinks, at some level, millions of illegal immigrants voted for Hillary. I'm, I, I'm going to talk about the thousands of, Mus of Muslims cheering. Um, so he said that in, in, tw in f the fall of 2015, and it caused an uproar, and, and if any of you... Um, you know, have been in New York for a while or even just watched the news in, in 2001, you'll know that's not true. That did not happen. That, that just did, fundamentally, did not happen. And I went back and forth with the campaign and Donald Trump himself over this a number of times. I had a long 25-minute call where he kept insisting to me that it happened, and I kept saying, listen, it didn't happen. Um, if you have footage of it that nobody has seen, please point us to it. And he said, I'll send it to you, I'll send it to you. We have the clip, we found it, I'll send it to you. Never sent it. He was likely confusing the West what Bank. he saw in the yeah. West Bank, because yeah. I remember that image. Yeah. But it was pointed out so many times to him, mm -hmm. and he kept on saying it. Mm -hmm. In the face of the evidence in front of him, he kept on saying it. And that's when he no longer believes it, He's now decided that he's going to go with it because he can't admit weakness. I do generally believe, oh, I agree I with you, he believes what he believes in the moment that he believes it, and when he changes his mind, he believes that. Okay. I want to get through, there's, yeah, I think he still thinks Trump Tower 68 stories tall, even though the, it's quite clear that there's 10 missing floors in the elevator, but that's me. Um, who among the fired Trumpers might speak out effectively? Oh, gosh, Rex Tillerson? Um, I think it'd be interesting if he came out and, and uh, confirmed that he called him a, a, a moron, even though he's, cause he's never really denied it. Um, oh, gosh. Everybody that's gone in there has come out 
drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've known, I knew people who were very anti-Donald Trump and then went to the White House and who I still talk to today and, and they sing a much different tune than they used to sing. Um, and it's, there's, a, there's a feeling that's a siege mentality that people have inside the White House where they, they feel like everybody is out to get them and it really does color their opinion of things. I think um, it's gotta be somebody who's, who's somewhat on the periphery. But I mean, look, look what Bannon's kind of raised some red flags. I mean, he certainly said a lot in Fire and Fury. Are congressional Republicans more critical of the administration and his policies off the record than they are on the yes. record? <laughs> There's one story I have, oh my gosh, it was one at the convention um, where I was talking to one congressional Republican and I don't remember that it's in the book, the specific words, but it is, the person told me that his nuclear, I think it was about the nuclear policy, he said he's scared, he's terrified, he's a crazy person. And then I turned the camera on and he totally changed his tune. Oh, he's a, it's, I'm so excited for Donald Trump to be the nominee and he's got wonderful ideas. We didn't, we didn't put it on the air because it was, I, I, after he had said that one thing, I couldn't honestly put the other thing on the air because they were in such striking, uh, such stark contrast to each other. So, yes. I asked a, a, a Democratic senator some months ago, just out of curiosity, what are the, when you go into the gym or whatever, what, are the, what, are the, what do your Republican colleagues think about this guy? He just looked at me and said they think he's nuts. I mean, that, you know. So, I have, I've heard that from, from them as well. Um, okay, it would seem clear that we are moving toward a constitutional crisis and potentially impeachment. I'm going with this as the... Do you think there is any evidence that could be discovered that would lead the Senate to convict if the House impeaches? I mean, yes, I guess. I mean, it depends on what Robert Mueller comes up with. Uh, who knows? I mean, that they haven't leaked at all. We have some ideas from witnesses on what they've been questioned on, but I mean, they're, they're going in all sorts of directions. There's that Seychelles meeting with Eric Prince, there's uh, Paul Manafort and the money laundering, there's the indicted Russians, looking into, we're hearing now Michael Cohen and his finances, what he was doing. There are so many different tentacles to this investigation. I have no idea if it's, if it's gonna come up with something, and if it does, I'm not entirely sure if the Republicans still control the House, that they would impeach him. I would bet a serious two-figure sum that they would not. Uh, did you, by but the that's, way? But that's why you can't stop watching, because you never, you just don't know what's going to happen. I can stop watching. <laughs> Especially because on March 29th, the baseball season starts. So, And in California, the games start at like 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm doomed for the rest of the, I mean, but, but it's interesting. I mean, in fairness, obviously, a lot of people can't stop watching because the ratings are huge and the digital subscriptions to the major newspapers are up. You're right. Um, but I just, did you, any of you see the Saturday Night Live sketch where Robert Mueller is on The Bachelor? Yes. And he has to come to this woman who has obviously been waiting. He says, I, I, I don't have, I can't commit to collusion. Yeah. And it shatters her world. Yep. And my feeling is, if, you know, assuming Mueller's around, if he comes up and he says, look, there's a lot of funny stuff and there are a lot of bad actors here, but, you know, the, the collusion thing, it just doesn't rise to the level of, of uh, I mean. He can't prove it. But there's going to be Maybe. rending of garments 
all through Manhattan. Well, that, I mean, that's, that is a question. I mean, if he, if he comes out and says it was just very, very sloppy and, um, yeah, there were some questionable things, but I, I can't prove it. What do, what do liberals and progressives and people who, who, are at it, who are sure that he did something wrong, how do they react? And if he comes up and says there was collusion or there was at the very least obstruction or, or this was terrible, what happens to those Trump supporters who refuse to believe it? We're in a perilous time. Well, that's why I mean, I, that's why I think the difference between Watergate is so striking. Back then, there was nothing but the so-called mainstream press. There was no talk radio hadn't really hadn't wasn't around. There was certainly nothing like Fox or Breitbart, no Hannity, no Rush, nothing like that. So you know you turned off the network news at at, at seven or seven thirty, and the next thing you got was the morning paper, all with the same, you know, mainstream approach. So no WikiLeaks. Hmm? No. no WikiLeaks. No, no, certainly no WikiLeaks. By the way, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. You mentioned Snapchat. Peter Hanby was a producer at CNN and did a really uh, powerful report on social media in the 2012 campaign and really came down very hard on Twitter and the fact that all the reporters you know, were, felt they had to. And shortly thereafter, he left CNN to become the political director of Snapchat, which may tell you something about where the, where the world is going. Um, this is an interesting one. And I'm not sure how many in the audience will appreciate it, but where did you first get an interest in fish? Now, let me explain for some reason. <laughs> I think this is fish the is silence a very over the popular audience. band, kind of in the modal of the Grateful Dead, I guess. Sort of, yeah. Well, that's my reference. Point. Yeah. yeah. But where did this come from? And you do you do throw fish references into your? I do. So it's fish with a ph. Um, you've seen you've you've seen them headline Don't count on it. Square Garden. <laughs> No? Um, We're talking Mel Torme here, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I got into fish um, when I was in high school. A, a, a guy I had a crush on liked the band, and so I started listening to the band. I got rid of the guy, ultimately, and kept the band. I love them. They're, they're, it's a jam band. It's, you kind of, I don't know, my husband kind of hates it. Um, <laughs> I, okay. And there's really goofy, silly lyrics. The cars, the, the tires are the things in the car that make contact with the road. It's very straightforward. Um, and in the campaign, I started listening to them again because I was so stressed out and wound up and crazed. I needed something to relax me. And what is the antithesis of Donald Trump in a Trump campaign? It's my jam band, Fish. So I would listen to their like kind of... Um, Okay. Dreamy, soft jams I, I, to put me to sleep. I think that's a sign of real mental health. I do. I, it, I, I do as well. When I would, <laughs> in 80 and 30 years ago, when I was out on covering, before I realized it was a, really not my place to go cover a campaign because they had become so ritualized, um, and people were just beginning to listen in their earbuds to the speeches, and I had a Grateful Dead tape. But notice yeah. it was so long ago it was a tape. Well, it, you know... Um, <laughs> Okay. Now you can just stream it online and get yeah. whatever you want. How can we not feel elections are a lost cause when operations like Cambridge Analytica exist? Now, this is a story. Yeah. Um, one, if you can do this, 
as they say, pretend you're on the network news. You, have a, you don't have five minutes. Just very briefly. My husband did the story on it today. Can we just get him up here to talk about it? He's, he's probably got it down better than I do. Cambridge Analytica is a, um, um, a digital company that um, basically uh, uh, collected data for voters. And um, they signed on with the Trump campaign in 2016. It was run by a guy named, um, or run through the Trump campaign by a guy named Brad Parscale, brought in by a guy named Brad Parscale, who's now Donald Trump's um, campaign manager for 2020. And they used Cambridge Analytica to help them target voters um, and um, get the information for voters and which ads work for which voters. Cambridge Analytica is now embroiled in a big controversy because the Trump campaign used Facebook very clearly to their advantage. They would micro-target people. Cambridge Analytica did this as well by, um, did they buy the content or did they have an app and then how did it, what's the, what's I the thought they had bought it, but I'm not gonna venture into this. There's questions world. about what, how they co-opted information that they gathered from Facebook users and then sold it. Oh, I know, somebody gathered the information from Facebook on the pretense that this was a, an academic st study yeah. and delivered it um, to Cambridge Analytica. Tony, did we get this right? Sort of, that's enough. You want to translate? I mean, you want to, you, we didn't. A third of American voters have yeah. their information in the Cambridge Analytica system, and Trump used that to micro target right. um, people. And it may be illegal. It's certainly Facebook has, who Channel denied four, it. Channel 4 News, Facebook has suspended them, saying yeah. that they use it in, inappropriately. Channel 4 News, which is um, uh, a UK news gathering outlet, great. Um, uh, journalism, it's like their version of 60 Minutes, sort of, um, are coming out with a, an interview that they've done with the head of Cambridge Analytica in a couple days, uh, where they ask him why, what he was hoping to get, and why they were interested, I think, in, in Russian money. It, it should be very... Um, it's on the boil, let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Illuminating. Um, Care to, guys, care to proffer your opinions about possible Democratic candidates for the president in 2020? Oh, gosh. You don't have, you can skip Everybody. this one. Yeah. Every, no, seriously, everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, any of you fly Southwest Airlines ever, you know how they line up groups in one, two, three, four to board the plane? That's what the first debate's gonna, it's gonna be like a, either that or the Le Mans start, where the first 15 candidates who get to the podium get to debate. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's, it, it is, it, it's absolutely lunatic. And I must say, you don't have to, while it's a great idea to read Katie's book, anyone who thinks after what happened last time, they should be speculating two years out has really got to be, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even do it. I really wouldn't because, you know, the only thing that there's a, there's a semi- valid rule that generally speaking, the next president is very different from the last president, uh, which is what I think I mentioned here two weeks ago, which is why a couple of people think that if the Democrats could do it, they should nominate a very boring, 
Fred McMurray type. Well, that's what's working for the Democrats right now in their special election. Right, exactly so. Connor Tug Lamb Jones was not a headline right. grabber. He was not ostentatious. Right. He was the exact opposite right. of Donald Trump, and, and it fact, worked well. Joe Trippi, the political operative who did the Jones campaign in Alabama, told me that in the focus groups they would get Trump voters, and they said, you know, we're just exhausted. Yeah. We, we just want, we, we don't want this. We, and, and he said, it didn't matter what issue you raised, they didn't want to hear it. They just wanted some peace and quiet. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I think Fred McMurray or the, the guy who played Beaver's father, I'm, I'm dating myself here, you know, but, you know, Robert Young from Father Knows, but they get, you know, just everything's going to be okay. Ozzie Nelson. Someone bland. Okay. Why did you decide to leave the field for an anchor position? Was it your decision, and if so, was it easy or more difficult for you? Um, I said no to, go to going to Washington. Uh, I, I, as you would imagine, after two years on the trail, didn't want to go to the White House. Um, I needed a break. I wanted to live in New York. I wanted to get married. Um, and I fell basically into the this anchor position I was filling in, and then I did a good job at it, and um, they made it a, a permanent position. I'm happy with it right now because it's a, it's a new skill, and I get uh, a variety of people that I get to uh, talk to, and I, I'm a big fan of tough questioning, and, and there's always tough questioning to be done. Uh, during the 2 p.m. hour and the 5 p.m. hour of lawmakers about why they're voting a particular way or why they're excusing a particular bit uh, of behavior. Um, I still get to do some reporting as well. It's a little bit more difficult because I have to pour my focus into this show, but I like writing, so I get to write the show, which is nice. Um, I, I don't know if it's, like, it's going to be a, a, a permanent gig for the rest of my life, um, because I do, I do miss, I'm going to regret saying this, I do miss being in the field and on the road. Ah, uh, you I got the bug, the, huh? I, I, I have it. Like, I, once I start do, I'm saying like a lot, my California's no, I, coming out. This, this is, <laughs> I, I got my, over this. I, but. I miss, it, there's something to be said about getting on a plane and waking up and not knowing where you are, and... Which happens a lot, and then, but also being on the road and getting to try new places for dinner and talking to people, and it's nice. No, I look. My friend Joe Klein in 1988 said he was retiring. He's, he was, none, that was his last campaign, and he, 30 years later, he said, "Yeah, now I'm really done." <laughs> and and there is a lure. Look, I mean, it's not. It's it's like it's like war correspondence. Only you don't get shot at. Um, you know, well, there is yet. something about it. <laughs> not yet. That's true. There is, but I mean, being yelled at by a you know by a delegate to a convention is not quite the same as being you know in, under fire in in, in Srebrenica. No, it's not. It's not. So I, I I get it. But you know what I'm hoping is um, that you get yourself in a position um, where you get to say to your executive producer, as you know Peter Jennings, who told his bosses, "We are staying in the Balkans." Yeah. We are covering that story. And he probably wound up saving tens of thousands of lives. Because, and, or Koppel saying, we are going to do race because Nightline was an established show. It ain't Nightline anymore, but I mean, when it was really Nightline. And Koppel had the clout to say, no, we are going to do this story. Um, because we need, you know, it seems to me that that is what is desperately needed. I, I hope so as well. I do. I, um, 
I think the best job um, that I could possibly have would be one that has a blank check to go anywhere I want in the world and cover whatever story I want in the world, be it suffering in, um, in Syria or um, going and talking about uh, how uh, Japan has recovered from uh, Fukushima or have they not recovered. I, I, I think there are so many stories out there that we miss on a daily basis and it would be a dream of mine to be able to, to have the interest and the support of a company to go do that. Um, cross your fingers. Just a couple more. Who was or were your most difficult guests to interview? Oh gosh. Dave Bratt is a hard interview. Dave Bratt, because he just spins and spins and spins. He's darting from one uh, one uh, opinion to another, one side to the other. He's, he's tough. Trump is a tough interview. Donald Trump is a very tough interview because he doesn't answer any question you ask him. Um, and and he refuses, I mean, you could ask him the same question for an hour and he will never answer it. He's just tough in that way. Um, yeah, those two. So I, I tend to end these sessions uh, with the same question, which is, if you were to come back here in five years, I don't know, with two new books, whatever, do you think the country, you would find the country in better shape or worse shape than it is now? I have to be an optimist, because if I don't look at it optimistically, I will have a hard time waking up in the morning. Um, I have to think that we're gonna be in a better place, that we will learn lessons from this current climate we're in, and we will find a way to get back on the same page that we will learn lessons from a foreign government meddling in our election, that we will learn lessons from social media dividing us, that we will learn lessons to, went to where a portion of the country voted in a way that another portion of the country finds abhorrent. I think the biggest problem we're facing is we don't talk to each other. Um, it sounds a bit Pollyanna, but I, I think the, the way to fix the divide in the country is simply to talk to people you don't agree with. Not have a fight, not scream at them. Talk to them and listen to them. Because what I found with Donald Trump uh, voters was more than anything else, they felt like they weren't being heard. Whatever, whatever their, their issue was, and not all of them believed that Donald Trump is a great person or would be a great president or believed in his policies, and you can't paint a broad brush and say Donald Trump report, uh, supporters are all racists or xenophobes or um, uneducated or misogynist. A lot of them were just frustrated and they felt undervalued. So if we find a way to hear people again, if we find a way to value people again, I have to hope we're gonna be in a better place. Well, I'll tell you something, folks. Um, as some of you may know, I am not an optimist by nature about, I used to be. Um, but after listening to Katie Turr, I will tell you this. If she is emblematic of the next generation of our journalistic um, major leaguers, I am way more optimistic about the profession than I was 90 minutes ago. So thank you very much. For Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.